0: The Jodcast. Wondering if there's any Belgian monks on these Trappist planets. With Hayden Rampaderev, Jean-Francois Robertau, Monique Henson, Mike Garrett, and Mateus Melento. The Jodcast. March twenty seventeen extra edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Monique and joining me in the studio are Jeff, Hayden and Mike. Welcome to the Jodcast.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Hi. Um, I believe it's all your first times presenting, although um, we're going to hear some interviews from you, Jeff and Hayden, later on. And Mike, I believe you've been interviewed before. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jeff and Hayden, is um, you've not been on the Jodcast before. Could you introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about what you do?
1: Yep, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I'm Hayden Rampardard. I'm a postdoc here at University of Manchester. I mostly work on the SK Imaging Development Pipeline team. I also kind of sometimes on the side work on, um, I'm interested in low luminosity AGNs, which are very tiny black holes, very weak black holes that exist in, um, very, like in large galaxies. So I, so, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. And, um, I'm Jean-Francois Ropetoy or Jeff. is fine as well. Um, so I, I believe I've been interviewed once, uh, mm-hmm. in the past. I don't remember when exactly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm uh, also a postdoc here in Manchester and I'm, uh, studying the turbulence in the interstellar medium and as well the uh, magnetic field
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Well it's good to have you here
1: So in the shortest time, Matt answers your astronomical questions and we have two very special interviews we did in a recent conference, a SETI conference that is, that took place at Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics and before we get to that, um, I could ask Mike, um, about the conference, since you were the host of this conference, could you tell us a little bit about it?
3: Okay, so um, every year There's a meeting of the UK SETI Research Network. That's uh, a group of mostly academics who are interested in SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, Mostly astronomers, but actually also from from various other disciplines. Uh, We all get together and share some of our work, give presentations and talk about how we can Move the whole sort of SETI research forward in the in the UK. Um, so this this year we volunteered here in Manchester to to host the meeting, uh, and I think it was a very interesting meeting. We enjoyed it very much.
2: I may have a question for you. Uh, so it was the first time I uh, I've been to a, a SETI conference like this, and um, so the, the range of subject was really broad. Is it always like that? Uh,
3: um, but it depends what kind of SETI meeting you go to, but certainly the research network here in the UK, the idea is really to be tra- try and be as inclusive as possible, so not just astronomers or physicists, but really try and reach out to people who are interested in sort of artistic aspects of SETI, mm-hmm. um, also you know novels, science fiction, um, also people that are interested in anthropology, zoology. There's a lot of things that. You know, when you start thinking about extraterrestrial life that, you know, has relevance to some of these, some of these topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And for you, like, why, why do you feel SETI is worth pursuing? Because I know in the astronomy community, there's quite a few sceptics, but then, you know, there's also a lot of people doing research. So what justifies it for you?
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the the astronomical community is kind of split down the middle, um, you know, half the people think that it's it's pretty interesting, and the other half are, as you say, a bit sceptical, and maybe think we're we're wasting time. Uh, and then there's there's that five percent that are really really gung ho and really think <laughs> it's the most important thing ever, which is probably me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that just because, it, as astronomers, you know, we can address all sorts of fundamental questions. Um, for example, you know, how did the universe start? Um, you know how did the planets form um, stars form etc how did the galaxies evolve through cosmic time and these are all important questions and they're interesting to astronomers but I think they're also of interest to, to a lot of people you know normal people out there uh, and the other big question which I think is, is relevant is you know are we alone in the universe or are there other planets with intelligent life on and that also seems to me to be a really kind of major question that you would like to know the the answer to, and I also think that astronomers can learn a bit from uh, thinking more broadly. So that fifty percent of astronomers that are a little bit sceptic, you notice that they they really only think about you know what's what's above the earth or what's outside <laughs> the earth or even what's outside the the solar system, and th- they concern themselves with that. But I think if we also realise that. Life on this planet is, seems to be rather special or really important and, and how you can combine that with a bigger picture of the universe that's not just about the Big Bang or the formation of the first stars or the evolution of galaxies, but the whole picture, and to me the whole picture is also about life forming on planets and in particular intelligent life forming on planets and how that evolves.
0: No, I think that's a really good point. Um, I'll, I'll admit that I, sometimes fall into the camp of one of those (laughs) sceptics. And particularly, I'm a cosmologist, so I look at the universe on really big scales, and I have been known to say I don't care about anything smaller (laughs) than a galaxy. (laughs) So I think it's good to be reminded of the bigger picture, um, which includes the smaller picture. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, so let's get on uh, to our first interview, uh, in which we talked uh, to Danny Price and Jamie Drew about uh, the Breakthrough Initiative.
1: Good day. Um, my name is Hayden Rampadarath. I'm a postdoc here at Jordan Bank Center for Astrophysics and, I'm uh, with, um.
2: I'm Jean-François Robitaille. I'm also a postdoc at the University of Manchester.
1: And for the last two days, we've been having, um, part of the UK re- SETI research network. Um, there's been lots of talks about, um, SETI and, and very important, um, discussions for, about the future and even current events. I also have two members from one from Breakthrough Initiatives, which is Jamie Drew and Danny Price from, um, Breakthrough Listen. Um, So, first of all, I'll pass it over to Jamie Drew. I'll introduce himself and talk a little bit about um,
4: Breakthrough Initiatives. Certainly. So, my name is Jamie Drew. I'm the Chief of Staff with the Breakthrough Prize Foundation and a Project Manager with the Breakthrough Initiatives. I may start by saying that the Breakthrough Initiatives were announced in July 20th at the Royal Society in 2015 with um, Stephen Hawking and Sir Martin Rees, as well as our Chairman, uh, Dr. S. Pete Warden and our primary sponsor, um, uh, Mr. Yuri Milner. And the Breakthrough Initiatives, is kind of in one sentence, is really a philanthropic private program looking at searching for life in the universe and in all of its forms, and space exploration. We have announced a series of initiatives, but we're primarily here at the UK SETI Research Network Symposium to talk about SETI and our first initiative called Breakthrough Listen, which is a $100 million investment in the field of SETI. And we decided to contract uh, UC Berkeley in sunny California to run that program. Of course, have uh, Danny Price here from that program today. So,
1: um, Before we move over to Danny, in, in your talk you had mentioned about bringing SETI into the academic arena. Um, could you briefly talk about that? Like, like what, what do you really mean in that sense?
4: So SETI has been around for quite some time now. And in kind of an analysis of efforts of the past, there's a rich history of prominent figures and individuals and papers. SETI has not necessarily matured in the field of academic thought or academic institutions as a, say, a proper discipline. And so one of the primary objectives of the Breakthrough Initiatives is to make Breakthrough Listen the vehicle at which we Provide the financial resources, the intellectual resources, and the the people to make it a rigorous science, scientific uh, discipline, bringing SETI into mainstream astronomy. That is our primarily goal, and you know, one uh, measurement of that is is peer-reviewed publications. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to to involve ourselves um, internationally on the kind of uh, publishing circuit as well as like academic conferences to really engage with the um, astronomy community on the field of study and finding its place um, in a more permanent way. Right. Yeah. That sounds very exciting actually. Um
2: yeah, maybe you have one question. Uh so about yeah the philanthropy in the private sector. So we see we see it a lot those days with uh for example SpaceX and uh you mentioned Bigot as well, Aerospace space or something. Yeah. Um do you think it's, it's the future of fundamental research in general or?
4: Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a great question. Um, the, you know, most people's conscious of the space age is the likes of, um, Yuri Gagarin or the first Apollo landings or Sputnik. Um, that's the space age, but the space age really began hundreds of years prior to that with ground based observations, astronomers doing the kind of, monotonous and at times lonely work of staring at the stars. So your kind of Galileo to Gagarian period was dominated, interestingly enough, by a large contribution of private actors, that is to say, wealthy industrialists who put money into the field of space exploration, ground-based space exploration. So in sunny California, where the Breakthrough Initiatives are headquartered we have an observatory called Lick Observatory. And James Lick was a wealthy industrialist at the time, 1800s, who decided that he would um, contribute nearly a fourth or third of his wealth. At first, he wanted to build a pyramid in downtown San Francisco, and he was convinced that uh, perhaps he should put his money towards scientific pursuits. So he put it in in the Lick Observatory. You know, I think it was equivalent to about, um, uh, in today's U.S. dollars, about $1.2 billion of his net worth. And what you find during that period is the majority of, of observatories in the United States were built through, through private means and private mechanisms. Uh, early, early rocketry as well with, with Goddard. So today, as you mentioned, um, SpaceX, um, Bigelow and Jeff Bezos and, and other um, dynamic and wealthy individuals involved in what has been characterized as the new space age. This commercial, uh, Attribute is not necessarily anything new. There's a wonderful book being published, I believe, this year or next year by Alex Macdonald that describes this as a reemergence of of private investment in space. And the Breakthrough Initiatives are are much in the same vein. A, a private institution, following a long history of private investment in space exploration. Perhaps what makes us a bit unique is probably the first most kind of significant contribution to the field of SETI. Of course, there's been Paul Allen in the back with the Allen Telescope Array and the SETI Institute. But with the announcement of breakthrough Starshot, which is um, looking at accelerating a small miniaturized probe to our nearest sun, 4.3 light years away, the Alpha Centauri system, looking at accelerating at a velocity of 20% light speed would probably be the first Philanthropic non-profit organization that has a space mission, a space-based mission. So that's kind of exciting. Um, but again, we 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 come from a long history of a long economic history of private investments in space exploration. So um, yeah,
1: thanks a lot, Jamie. So now we'll talk to we'll switch over to Danny Price, and we'll probably him um, ask him to discuss well describe a little bit more of virtual listen because it's the current actual work being done by um virtual
4: initiatives. So Danny.
5: Sure. Okay, well, uh, so Breakthrough Listen is a 10-year, $100 million program to try and answer the question, are we alone in the universe? So it is a a SETI program, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and we are using uh, the best telescopes we can to make the most sensitive and uh, widest bandwidth measurements that are possible. So uh, the, the kind of The first few telescopes we've been using have been the Parkes 64-metre telescope in New South Wales in Australia, the 100-metre Aperture Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, which is uh, one of the largest steerable structures in the world. Um, The Chernobyl uh, sarcophagus is now the largest movable structure in the world. Um, And we're also using the APF telescope at Lick Observatory, um, which, as Jamie mentioned uh, the observatory was originally funded for by philanthropic means so they're the three main telescopes we're using um, the breakthrough foundation has agreements that we get a certain percentage of the time to do our city observations um, the other aspect of it is that we've built new digital systems so that we can expand the capabilities of these telescopes uh, in a way that hasn't been done before so for example at green bank we now have about half of our system installed um, but when the full system is installed we'll be able to uh, record 10 gigahertz worth of bandwidth uh, from the telescope instantly and what that means is uh, in terms of searching the electromagnetic spectrum the electromagnetic spectrum is very wide it goes from the 10 meter kind of wavelengths so all the way up through to uh, a couple of centimeters there's a, a radio window there um, and to cover that entire radio window traditionally required many different pointings with many different receivers, that takes a lot more time to do. What we want to do with Breakthrough Listen is to try and uh, cover as much of the electromagnetic spectrum as possible with uh, the fewest pointings of the telescope. And that just means it's a lot more efficient and you can cover a lot more ground. So if you imagine um, with FM radio, if you tune in, um, you move the dial slowly and you get to a particular frequency at which there's some information being broadcast. But if you can only view a little kind of narrow channel at once, if if you're just going through with your headphones and you're twisting a dial, you, it'll be very slow and it'll take a very long time to get through the entire spectrum. We're covering tens of gigahertz worth of bandwidth at once, and that means that we can be a lot more efficient. But it also means we need a lot more computing hardware there. Mm. So we've installed a, a new system at Green Bank, a new system at Parks, and we're uh, developing new systems for future telescopes as well.
1: So, well, as you say, future telescopes. Um, one question, um, why these particular telescopes?
5: So f- there's a ver- variety of different ways you can go about searching for signals that would uh, suggest that there is uh, life beyond uh, Earth. So the I guess the main reason we want to use uh, Parks and Green Bank is because it fits our first observational strategy uh, very well. So I think one of... Lots of interesting questions, but for me, one of the most interesting one is, of the, the closest stars, how many of those have uh, habitable planets and how many of those could possibly have uh, an intelligent civilization on them? And if you're limiting yourself just to a close volume of stars, then you can do targeted observations where you um, take a telescope, point it at that star, take some data and see if you see anything. Mm-hmm. And with the large single dish telescopes that we're using, Greenbanks and Parks, they have a very large aperture, meaning they collect a lot of light. Um, but that also means that they have a very small field of view. So it makes them very good for targeted observations of stars. But uh, if you wanted to do a survey, um, you might want to use a different instrument. So uh, radio astronomy, uh, radio interferometers, where you get lots of smaller dishes, and combine their signals uh, to make synthesized images. That approach uh, we'd also want to use for a different survey strategy. And so the Breakthrough Listen program has, has three main goals. The first is uh, to survey 100, sorry, 1 million nearby stars. And then we want to do a, a survey of the galactic plane. And then we want to do uh, a survey of the 100 nearest galaxies. And so with that, we get a, a large sampling of parameter space. So
1: uh, one, one question. Um, what type of signal do you, do you look for? So how could you tell that that signal would be from our civilization versus from, let's say, a Mesa, for instance, which is also narrowband?
5: Uh, that's a very, uh, good question. And the, the answer is, of course, we don't know exactly what signal to expect, but the kind of class of signals we're looking for are things that are, Notably artificial in some way. So an example of that would be something that was very narrow in frequency um, Which if it was narrower than that that you expect from uh, spectral things and uh, things like mazes and uh, Which have a they're still very uh, Narrow bandwidth, but they're narrow on kind of kilohertz scales. Whereas um, we look down to the Hertz level
1: so Doppler shift right. of your signals is also one of
5: those. signals That is as well. one. So, um, in terms of telling if a signal is artificial or not, um, you can look at very narrow band or like very high time resolution signals. In terms of telling if it's uh, terrestrial or uh, extraterrestrial, uh, the main way you can do that is by using things like Doppler shift. So, if a signal is based on Earth and you don't expect to see things like um. Doppler shift, because as the Earth rotates, um, the transmitter is also rotating at the same speed. Whereas if you have a transmitter in space as the Earth rotates, you do expect to see Doppler shifts. Um, If you have a signal that's uh, traversed a very long distance and is broadband, then you expect to see dispersion on the signal, where the um, propagation through the uh, intergalactic medium means that you get a different time of arrival for different frequencies. So there are things that you would expect a extraterrestrial signal to have um, just based on the literal physics of the uh, signal transmission. Uh, but all we can really say is that we are looking for artificial signals um, and we're looking through as much of the parameter space as possible. And we're trying to do that in using some more modern methods as well. So one thing I think is worth mentioning is uh, there's a lot of work coming out of machine learning and deep learning. And some of those classification algorithms may end up being very useful for sifting through the large amounts of data we have.
2: I might have a question along those lines. If I understood well during your talk, you, you said that breakthrough listen data will be public as well. Mm-hmm. So are you thinking about um, maybe an updated version of City at Home or something like that, or create a civilian project like uh, Galaxy Zoo to analyze this kind of data?
5: Uh, yeah, our approach is uh, different to SETI at Home and different to Galaxy Z. So with SETI at Home, they uh, have a set of algorithms and they get you to download the screensaver, install it on your computer. And then um, the, your computer will then, whenever your screensaver is running, download some data and process that and then send the results back. And that's good if you want to do uh, a class of algorithms which are very computationally intensive but have low bandwidth in Mm -hmm. requirements because you have to send the data all throughout the internet. Given the data volumes we have with Breakthrough Listen, that paradigm, uh, it doesn't map so well onto the problem. For us, it's better to try and uh, use data locality and have the compute done as close to the uh, data as possible. So with the data archive we're making it open to everybody but we also hope that we can uh, provide some compute facility um so you similar to a supercomputer you can log on and do some of the data analysis there
2: okay maybe ask for some times yeah um, on the computer with, uh,
5: with things like galaxy zoo where you have some data and you're going through it i think that is an interesting option to look through but it requires um a little bit more data processing to be done so you need a little bit more uh, richness in the data that has to be provided before um, the general public can just go and start clicking things so uh, i guess the with the data archive we want everyone who has any interest to just be able to download it but we also want uh, people who have uh, specific skills so from uh, communications or from deep learning or uh, astrophysicists who work on a different problem we want to give them the ability to get the data and play around and Perhaps even not looking for um, signs of uh, uh, ET, but looking mm-hmm. for uh, new exo-planets. mitigation algorithms or mm-hmm. the exoplanets or or okay. anything like that. Yes, of course,
4: I might just add that on on this topic of of analysis and software engineering, there's kind of a trend that you know much of the future of astronomy lies in software engineering or software various types of algorithm development. And, and the wonderful and beautiful thing about being based in Berkeley or down in Mountain View, Moffitt Field, and Silicon Valley, essentially, is, is that this is a, a, an epicenter for um, much of that type of work. And so one of our interests is not only to collaborate within um, the academic community internationally, but also with private industry when it comes to the development of, of sophisticated algorithms to tease out uh, signals because the the notion of of collecting more data in order to analyze you know some may deem less important than understanding how to view the data that we perhaps have already collected and so uh, we aspire to um, run a program that really engages with the hearts and minds of software engineers in silicon valley
1: so is this the software dogma you say you in your talk you mentioned that introducing software silicon valley dogma into into well, SETI and academics is is one of the key initiatives as well so that that sounds really exciting so one person they meet another and this this question is plaguing my mind slightly It's like they said and you answered it. Somebody suggested to wait fifty years for technology to improve before we could do it, but isn't doing that. So my question for both of you, and of one of you, what do we think about that? I mean, so it's like, so so somebody so for the for the listeners, somebody suggested like in since Drake did the first SETI experiment back in the sixties, astronomy and science has really moved forward, but SETI had stayed down, and it's only when technology technology start improving then we start seeing more advancement in in, in some of these answers. So somebody suggested that maybe we just wait fifty years, and then when technology improves, we detect SETI instead of go through an extra clear years. So uh, I would like to hear your opinions on that.
5: Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. Um, we can do stuff in 50 years and we can do stuff now and doing things now, um, has the advantages of we can get some answers now and they may not be as good as they were in 50 years. But if you look at the progress of science, I mean, if we had done no science up to now and managed to get the technology to where it is now without going through all the hard work to make that technology, but if, if we just, You know woke up one day and we had
3: the the
5: better technology then we could have done some of these extremely hard measurements that people spend their entire work uh, life working toward answering um could be done very quickly but that's not the way it works Um, (laughs) and i think it's important um, on on many levels to innovate and to uh, try and answer things now in terms of like the the next kind of 15 20 years the foreseeable future of astronomy now is the perfect time to be doing seti because um we we now know uh, thanks to kepler and um and other missions that there's a large amount of exoplanets out there and that, you know basically every star um has a planetary system and one in 5 stars has a a planet that could be in the habitable zone so we know that there's there's a good motivation to go out and start looking and we and we do have very good technology now. And so with the the single dish telescopes, we are getting the maximum that we possibly can without the next um, large increase in um, uh, capability of the uh, actual analog systems of the telescopes. So while it may be true in 50 years, things will be better, I think doing things now is important and also keeping the community alive. Um, if you don't do anything for 50 years and then suddenly expect to be able to ramp up, that's just not how it works. Um, also, if if we want to get on to the next generation of telescopes, like uh, the Square Kilometre Array, we need to be doing things now to make sure that it's designed in um, to the system and that it's possible to create the data products that we would like.
2: Uh, yes, uh, I, I totally agree with you <laughs> about these things. Can um, I just
4: add that yes. that there's also... You know, <clears throat> In retrospect, it's, it's kind of easy to <clears throat> review what has been done. It's quite difficult to predict the future, perhaps impossible. But what exactly. we do know is a somewhat of a constant is is luck is a variable that that plays into um, a lot of what happens at times in science, and that you never know. There's kind of a serendipity of space exploration. You don't know what you're going to stumble upon, and there's been great a great deal of discoveries. Um, anticipating um, perhaps a discovery in one field, but coming up with something else in some some other field. like Fast radio bursts was mm. perhaps one of those. So the time's right as well, because when one is presented with an opportunity of public interest due to the discovery of so many exoplanets and science broadening throughout the world, access to information and technologies, and the confluence of kind of, monetary wealth in the private sphere investing in fields that are um deemed to be um difficult to invest in with public funding because there's a very low chance of any substantial return on investment um, private money makes a lot of sense in those regards you tend to high invest in high risk projects and this is this is a, it's a high risk program and if there's a chance for return on investment, that's probably one of the most extraordinary returns on investment that humanity could ever possibly conceive of. So, and it's difficult to spend public money on, on programs like that. So that's sure. yeah, the time's right financially as well in a way.
1: One last question would be, so what should we, the view, what the listeners and the public look forward to breakthrough?
5: Uh, okay, well, so the, the main uh, method we'll be using to uh, kind of uh, put yardsticks out is uh, to, to show our progress is uh, peer-reviewed publications. Mm. We're working at the moment on our, our first few publications coming out, which will be detailing the, uh, the digital systems and the uh, data analysis approaches we're using. But in the future, we, uh, you know, we're going to keep this very scientifically rigorous peer-reviewed path and whenever we release something that is, uh, of interest to the public, we'll make sure that we also release a, a press release to to say, uh, but the, the thing that's going to happen in the next three years in terms of the observing program is we will, uh, survey all of the, uh, we have the sample of, uh, about one and a half thousand nearby stars that we are looking at with the Green Bank telescope. And, um, in the next three years, we'll, uh, you know, complete that over all the different receivers on the telescope and we'll be able to answer the, the question, out of those 1,500 stars, is there is there anything unusual about them uh, in the, the the bands that we're able to look at here from Earth? Um, with parks we're going to be doing a galactic plane survey, um, so using the receiver they have there that has a very fast survey speed um, to look at the galactic plane and see if there's anything unusual any any evidence of uh, an artificial signal there, so I guess they're the two main data sets after that, and going through the, the the next seven years of the breakthrough program we'll be um expanding from a thousand to a million stars and um, mm-hmm. also adding galaxies into the mix mm-hmm. and you were also thinking about
2: adding the Lovell telescope though no, as well
5: well um you know we're hoping to get as large a a fleet of telescopes as we possibly can um that that fit into our observing program we, we need to be able to analyze the data as well so we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin but um we're hoping to uh install some systems on the Lovell telescope and do some SETI here get some SETI uh in the UK uh, we're here at the UK SETI Research Network and so there are people who um uh uh, doing SETI in the UK but um, in terms of observational SETI where they're taking data that's been uh, a little thin on the ground just because there haven't been the uh, opportunities to do so. We're also looking at using the uh, Meerkat telescope in South Africa. We're very interested in that uh, because that gives us a path toward the SKA the square <coughs> kilometer array and uh, the the square kilometer array will be the premier radio telescope in the world at, um, at low to mid frequencies and being able to do SETI on that would be uh, would be very yeah. groundbreaking just because of its sensitivity. One question
1: I have to ask is: so how does let's say someone listen to this want to get involved in some level? You said public data, so eventually that will be there. So mm-hmm. is there any other way? Let's say to someone's very interested in in getting moving forward in these things, if if they want to get involved, how can they get involved?
5: Yeah, uh, well, we're we're still in the the first few stages of getting our public data archive up and running, um, but once we do, uh, anyone can go and download the data, and we're trying to provide a toolkit uh, to get some of the entry level barriers. Uh, so, for example, you don't have to know too much about the file format. Um, uh, for the the first few um, years, I expect that uh, to really get involved, you will have to have some. Um, acuity with uh computers you may you may not need to know every single little bit about the telescope but you will need to know how to um, write a simple script and how to plot data and things so um there will still be some uh technical hurdles um for people but um at least in the the, the short term oh,
2: okay.
5: uh, longer term we will you know we would like for as many people as possible to be able to access the data
1: and probably education in schools eventually. Yeah, so, um, so forth,
5: we have so, yeah. some people working on outreach. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, we have um, a guy in Berkeley, Steve Croft, is um, is very interested in making sure that we maximise the the outreach potential. And so, we're trying to um, provide little tools and utilities so that um, schools and and uh, community groups can play around with the data and kind of understand uh, a little bit more about how everything works.
1: I think that's it. And, yeah. um, thank you, Jamie and Danny for your time. I mean it was very very informative discussion. so thank you very
0: much.
1: Th- thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.
0: Thanks for that Jeff and Hayden. Um, so what were your general impressions of the breakthrough project um, so both you from your interview but also I think you've had some involvement, Mike as well.
1: I know so it, in, in my general impression is essentially what is kind of summed up by um, Jamie Drew in his talk is like is the shape of things to come? And I really do believe that. And so the thing that I was impressed with about them in, in the interview and even their talk is that they're aiming to try and, to aim is to bring, he said to bring SETI into like the academic world, like really put it in the academic, like bring it out there. And also to introduce like more Silicon Valley dogma into it. It's, it's, it's to me, it's, it's really exciting what they're trying to do. And could it, would, are they able, would they be able to do it? Time will tell. So they have like really large goals. But they also subdivided into really smaller ones. So my impression was that it's, it's, it's really exciting time to, to, to be, to, to listen to them and even be involved in some way or the other.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also really enjoyed the, uh, the interview and the, uh, the conference from the uh, breakthrough, uh, initiative guys. Um, I uh, asked a question about the, uh, if the philanthropy will be the, future of the uh, mm. fundamental science I don't know how science is, is founded so th- I think it's, it, it's something that will be interesting to, to follow as well in the future how things are going on with on that perspective
0: and I guess that definitely is the case for lots of arts research it's mainly funded th- through philanthropy right, yeah. um, and I guess science would be quite different if that was the way that it was entirely mm-hmm. funded
3: yeah I mean I think that the breakthrough Listen project, which is just one of Mm -hmm. a number of initiatives that the Breakthrough Foundation sponsors. Yeah, I think as Hayden says, it's kind of placing SETI on a different level and doing really the first systematic surveys of stars, looking for signals, using some of the best telescopes in the world and really having, you know, large amounts of observing time. So it's really, it's really a step up and I'm I'm very impressed by the people that they have involved in the project Um, they have a lot of good engineers um, good scientists and uh, I think that's really important Um, so yeah let's hope something positive (laughs) comes out of it like a a SETI detection that would be um, fantastic but the other thing is that they're kind of in it for the long haul so Mm -hmm. um, they're talking about a 10 year program it's not that it's just going to be here for this year or next year it's It's a 10 year program and, and who knows, it may be be extended beyond, beyond that. Yep. Jamie Drew mentioned that, um, putting it towards
1: Mercat and eventually the SK. And I think that that's really, that, that that shows vision to the future is that we're using what we had. The, the aim is to do what we're doing in science now is that use the current instruments, get the, um, understand what we, our parameter space is, try to understand how we go about doing it and then put it towards the SK and, and, and really make it a real science for the, for the SK. And, and I really was really impressed with that. I'm, I was really la- hearted because I did part of, part of my PhD was also on SETI. And I was really, it was really heartening to see that this is actually being put forward as a, as, as a real,
3: real initiative. And yeah, so kudos to those guys. Yeah. So we, in previous meetings of the, the UK SETI research network, we had Andrew Simeon here. He wasn't able to make it to the last meeting, but I think you know Andrew is really the prime SETI researcher in the world and and he's the guy that's leading the breakthrough listen effort, which I think is is really fantastic and mm-hmm. as you say, I think you know he recognizes but I think the community in general recognizes that the SKA would be a fantastic SETI machine um and that a stepping stone to that is to look at the the precursors like meercap, try and start using them and and I think they see that very much as a kind of stepping stone towards using the Um yeah.
1: So one other thing that, that kind of st- st- stood out is uh, you think it's going to eventually become Argus, the old sky from S- Isaac like Asimov?
3: Um, well, the SKA? Yeah, or I, I, th- yeah I, I, I would like to think that at some point <laughs> in the future that we we could have uh, a radio telescope that would have that fantastic field of view that Arthur C. Clarke described in his, his book Imperial Earth. The Argus telescope, where you would, you know, see the whole sky instantaneously. Um, we need to kind of have a, have a little bit more advances in computing <laughs> and data processing <laughs> and digitization and all those kind of things that that are required. But that's coming, and it's only a matter of you know when we build that kind of telescope, yeah. not mm-hmm. if. And it could very well be, you know, what the next stage of the SK is after we've built phase one. That could be the type of technology that we need for mm-hmm. for phase two. And that would be, of course, be fantastic for astronomy. But I think it would be particularly um, interesting for SETI if SETI signals are quite rare. And then mm-hmm. sky coverage can be actually quite important. Mm-hmm.
0: Um So we've also got an interview coming up with Stephen Baxter, um, who's a science fiction author, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise to me, actually, that um, you were saying that the set, SETI doesn't just Im- include scientists; that it also includes artists and sci-fi writers. So, what kind of place do you feel they have in SETI, in in the field? What do they, you think feel that they bring to the field?
3: So, as well as the the UK meetings on SETI, there are sort of worldwide meetings. Um, they are organised by the IAA. And again, they also, they have this concept of, they have a session which is sort of conventional SETI, astronomy, engineering type um, presentations. But they also have something on, you know, the social aspects of SETI and the cultural and artistic aspects. And because it's one of those topics that appeals to everyone, not just astronomers, then, you know, there is an interest in, you know, how SETI, impacts those, those different fields. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly noticed, you know, a lot of interaction between scientists, for example, and artists. And I can see artists getting enthusiastic about some of the ideas that scientists have. And, and maybe in a way that you don't see normally in, in, in most scientific topics, but SETI seems to be a kind of real attractor for artists and, and other people like that. And even, even at the meeting that we had last week, um, you could see we we had one or two talks that were sort of at the edge of physics at some level, um, and and you could be sceptical about those talks in some ways, um, but you notice that they did actually have an impact on the the people that were not physicists but artists, for example. They they get sort of really motivated by some of these ideas that were banded about, like faster than light travel, um, all those kind of things. Um, so there's a the, it's just a way to inspire people, many different disciplines to, to new and different ways of, of looking at the the common topic of interest being, you know, alien life out there.
0: Yeah, and I guess it kind of works both ways as well, and that the scientists can inspire the artists, but also, you know, as we were talking about the Arthur C. Clarke book, and you're kind of going, oh, could we have that telescope? Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. also, the, the scientists take inspiration from the writers and artists. Yeah, hey. Absolutely.
3: I mean I, I mean Arthur C. Clarke actually describes um, the Lofar telescope or the MWA telescope telescopes that we're we're building now and we're just operating now. He he described those thirty years ago, in oh. fact forty years ago. So, um you know, the current authors of science fiction today, for example, we should be looking at those to get our ideas for tomorrow.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty interesting because one of the questions I asked um Stephen Baxter, and one thing I always wanted to ask like a sci-fi author is like as you see it as from Arthur C. Clark, as you go up even go before Arthur C. Clarke, you're talking about um um A. G. Wells, even before that Jules Verne, it's like you see science somehow parallelize it like um, okay, there's a there's a Time time difference, but essentially parallelized it. And we we got submarines and stuff like that. Not too far after Jules Verne, we went to the moon and we had flight. And Jules Verne spoke about that from the earth to the moon and and then H G Wells and and we we keep going. And science seems to somehow always match science fiction expectations. And one thing I I ask I am very interested in with with Stephen Baxter and we'll hear about it is that, he, and Mike said about the current sci-fi is that. Does science fiction always have to keep its game up? Because science science always seems to be pushing sci-fi to level, and science sci- and sci-fi seems to be leading science. Like it's a it's a communal relationship that I found absolutely. I find as a kid growing up and be getting into science from science fiction eventually. That it's a fascinating relationship. That that and he, it's it's it's, it was, it's just mind blowing buggling. expensive. What did you see? What the breakthrough guys are trying to do as well. on then it's SK eventually like as mini version of Argus. It's it's, it's getting even. It's, it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, now we've got the interview. Um, next up, uh, so J- Jeff and Hayden um, interview Stephen Baxter about the crossover between science fact and science fiction.
1: Um. Hi. Good afternoon. Um. My name is Hayden Rumpart, and I'm here with. Jean-François Rapital. And both of us are postdocs here at the Jordan Bank Center for Astrophysics. And for the last two days, we were hosts to the UK SETI Research Network. And today we have, um, our special guests and we're very delighted to have, um, Stephen Baxter with us, um, who's a famous sci-fi author. And so.
2: Yeah. I guess the, the first question is, can you talk to us about your, your background and how you became or chose to be uh, an accomplished science, sci-fi author?
6: Uh, well, it, it was a childhood dream, I suppose. Uh, you know, my first sensible ambition after wanting to be an astronaut and so on. Age 12 or 13, I was a big science fiction reader and, and, and uh, got into science fiction in the first place with TV and the movies, Star Trek, you know. And, uh, uh I read a, a collection by Isaac Asimov and in there he described how he wrote each story when he was a teenager working in his farmer's Father's pharmacy shop, as I recall, and sending stories into, to magazines, you know, and gradually building up. And it was the first time, I'd never met a writer, you know, I, uh, it was the first time I realised that writing was a career you could start, anybody you could start from, uh, you could start anywhere and, and, and get into it that way. So I was writing stories at an early age, 14 or 15, okay. I had a teacher at school who wrote radio plays as a sideline. This is in Liverpool, by the way, so I grew up not far from here, where we're speaking now. Uh, so he got me into professional habits by the age of about 16 finishing the stories properly and sending them to, to be sold. It took me a long time to, to build up any p- 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 sales momentum. So I was following other careers. Science fiction really got me into science and mathematics. And, and so that was my academic career. Ended up with a PhD in engineering. Uh, but I wasn't an academic, you know, the, the academic. With all respect, it wasn't for me. You know, the, uh, after the PhD part, you know, chasing endless contracts. and uh, So I went into industry for a while. I worked as a teacher in a 6 room college. I think that's a typical writer's career you kind of bounce around looking for, uh, while well, well, all the time developing my writing career on the side. So I finally, finally gave up my other jobs, um, 1995. So late thirties by then, I published six or seven novels and, and they were, but really basically starting from school, school age.
1: So you said that you've attended, so the UK Science, SETI research network, you've been to all. Yeah. So what's the importance of, uh, sci-fi author? Like I guess you said, you say you're no longer academic or you don't identify as a- academic. Uh, What's important of attending these type of meetings? Is it for, like, ideas or to motivate others?
6: Well, a a bit of both, really, I'd say. Occasionally I get invited to attend meetings like this just as as a sort of guest speaker. And that's what happened in the first place. Uh, Nine years ago now, 2008, Paul Davies, the physicist, is is now the head of a committee to do with SETI called the Post-Detection Task Group. They look at societal Implications of a detection of a radio signal from ETI, or even direct contact with ETI. How would we handle it? Uh, what would the cultural implications be, and so on? So I went along as a as a as a guest speaker to that, and I found that this group has been going for a long time since the sixties, I think. But uh, and there's there's usually been science fiction writers associated with it. You know, it's clearly within the, that domain. And so I, I volunteered to join at the meeting uh, that committee. So that got me into the SETI world. Uh, and, and for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite so much generating ideas. It's just becoming informed with this stuff mm. and also feeding back, you know, some of the more constructive speculation about the alien has been in the pages of science fiction novels all the way back to H.G. Wells. Uh, so it's, it's being part of the conversation really, I think. So I do, I write my books, but I've done some academic papers on SETI and SETI aspects as well. Kind of fringe stuff, you might say. One, for example, was I was working on another project to do with an interstellar space probe using modern technology-ish fusion, a fusion probe to the, to Alpha Centauri. And one thing that struck me there was what if the probe achieved contact? Suppose you have something like an, an Iron Age civilization that we can't see from here, can't signal to us, but there it is and the, the planet, the, the probe's always in the planet and it, you know, it's clearly discernible from structures and so forth. What should the protocols be? Should it make contact? How should we equip it? What, what, what should it do? And I think actually it seems to me that we should, we're going to have to decide that before we send such probes out. So that's the, so that's academic, you see, but it's, fr- it's fringe speculation. And, uh.
2: Um, so yeah, probably a question that is, I think you already answered, but if you think you, you, you have other answers, you can, uh, can go ahead. Okay. So yeah, so it's like, like we said before the, the recording, it's the first time I've been to a city, uh, a city conference before. And, uh, what was surprising is the, the the amount of talks that are not necessarily discussing about the way we can detect life uh, intelligence life out there or uh how we can understand the signal, but like the anticipation uh, like like you you just said about what will happen if we are contact uh, yes. by someone by someone else so what do you think is the role of the sci fi literature in this kind of anticipation? Got well, in y-
6: Yeah, I think it, I think it's, uh, um, adding to the imaginative scope of the, of the speculation, uh, in a way. But, but I think that's changed with time. Not my time with SETI, but since the beginning of the enterprise in 1960. I, I I'm not sure if the founders of SETI would admit this now, mm-hmm. but I think they expected to, to get resolved quite soon. Okay. Not, yeah. not immediately, but say within 10 years or 20 years. I think they really expected to find something. And of course they didn't. And and you know the, and you can rationalise that away. Now we're, we're fifty years into SETI. 50s, 19, from nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. Fifty years from then on is twenty ten, isn't it? So oh, yeah. we're in the sixth decade of SETI. Still, we found nothing. So uh, and, and so, I think the speculation now is is evolving somewhat because on the other hand, we've now got the exoplanets, all that data <laughs> yeah. on. It, I think one one stat that was quoted at this meeting was probably one in five stars has a planet in a habitable zone. Um, so, where Earth-like life with liquid water could conceivably arise, that's a heck of a lot of you know, hundreds of billions then of of potential habitats for life. Why is that? Why so? So that it becomes more difficult to understand the silence. So I think the, the speculations about about what's going on out there have changed because of. This lack, lack of evidence, you know, the absence of evidence at some point becomes evidence of absence. You can never prove. You could you could pick up a signal tomorrow, which would we, we throw all that away. Yeah. But in fact, now there, there are ingenious speculations about why we're not being we're not being seen. And I think I think I, I go along with uh, Ian Crawford, an astronomer who was at the meeting today, and you will yeah. have heard him say, uh, to give him credit, that the most likely explanation seems to be either there's no intelligence at all, at least willing to signal. For whatever reason, or the zoo hypothesis, which is where, like Star Trek, the prime directive, you stay back until you think the, the, uh, the junior culture is ready for contact. Mm-hmm. They're hiding in some way. Because yeah. it's not just radio signals and so forth that you'd see noisy civilizations. Starships are a pretty energetic craft, you know? You'd see a, an antimatter starship from light years away. Like the one in Avatar going to Alpha Centauri, you'd see it from light years away, this moving point. Probably if you had warp drive, massive, it would be like a neutron star <laughs> being, being shoved along at, uh, uh, you know, somewhere close to the speed of light or beyond. It's pre- these are pretty energetic events. It could be we're, we're seeing those and not recognizing them. Mm. Gamma ray bursts might be starships, exhausts, but it, it, it does seem mysterious that as far out as we look, distant galaxies, you see no sign of modification on a large scale. So, so as far as we look right across the observable universe, there's no sign of modification of that kind. It's pretty mysterious. So actually, the zoo hypothesis, the idea that we're living in a kind of planetarium, well, it's filtered out, is is plausible, and it fits the facts. Or for some reason, there's nobody does this. Uh, nobody makes a splash on a, on a cosmic, cosmically visible scale. But that seems strange as well. You'd only need one, uh, and you'd see it. Uh, yeah, the astronomers now are t- just another thing that came up in this meeting: Uh short-term radio bursts. The, the, the radio telescopes are discriminating enough now yeah. to pick up these things. You know, didn't know they existed ten years ago. So those are like SETI events, like short-term bursts of radio energy. Now we're finding those, and yet we haven't found SETI. So, so, the, so the more the technology evolves, and the more time goes on, the more the deep, the deeper the search gets, the more strange it, it becomes. And so, I think in a way, science fiction can help by coming up with wacky scenarios yeah. to explain this stuff. Like the zoo hypothesis really I think was an a, a NSF idea yeah, before yeah. it became, I don't want to say academicized, <laughs> but you know uh, it became more formalized yeah, yeah. In, in, in academic papers. On the other hand some of the more rigorous thinkers about this stuff are, follow a very science fiction-like logic. There was one paper here by Duncan Forgan academic from uh, Scotland who was talking about how you would use transiting planets to signal to each other. Mm -hmm. So if somebody at Alpha Centauri sees the sun, sees the earth transit the sun, you could fire a laser beam from the middle of the shadow, or you could put a huge structure in orbit so you get peculiar observable transits of the star, that kind of thing. And if you have, but then if you're an SF writer, you take that as a beginning idea and then go on from there. And that's what Duncan Flaugan did. He said, well, OK, you could have a whole network of these people, these civilizations speaking to each other. You can do statistics on the, the number of stars you could reach and so forth. Um, so so the, I think they borrow a kind of science fictional logic as well. You take an idea and then push it as far as you can, which is H.G. Wells' basic technique. Pick some idea and then push it as far as you can and make a story out of it. Yeah,
1: that that kind of led into a kind of approach. One of the questions I always wanted to, uh, to ask our uh, science fiction writers, like for instance, like back in like well, from H.G. E. Wells' time, like, sci-fi motivated a lot of science. That we are we have the cell phone because somebody yes. essentially wanted to have the stature communicator, and then you actually see translators, like you know, similar people are developing trying to have tri- and even the tricorders, yeah. yeah. And there's loads of it. Like I got into mm-hmm. to, to, to astronomy because I. Seti was a was a big thing. I also wanted to find out more about life out there. Yeah. Star Trek was a huge, huge influence. Reading the books of Isaac Asimov and yourself motivated like a lot of generations. But now that we're yeah. reaching science is becoming, is is reaching those science fiction. It's, it's getting yeah. close to those. Like we see Starshot, um, British Starshot is aiming to do that same thing. What you talked about in put uh, sending a probe to, to yeah. Alpha Centauri. So now that we're getting so close, that science is really like if you draw a curve that the the time kind of merging. What does that mean for sci-fi for the future? Does it does have to like really up its game and really go forward, or take the current ideas? And I, I think you just mentioned it as well, and just jump forward and just keep pushing science.
6: Oh, well, I, th- I think yeah, basically you keep mm-hmm. pushing science. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that I think that it's always felt like that mm-hmm. that uh, reality is c- catching up with the science fiction. So H.G. Wells' mechanized warfare—it took till the really was the Second World War—was more like his pr- pre-First World War vision. Yeah. Of populations in flight from a mechanized foe, then the, the, the lunar landing. I do remember, um, 1969. There was a lot of discussion then about is that the end of science fiction? Then, well, it was the end of a certain kind of science fiction. You know, the, the, there's always further horizons, and besides, the um, the cultural assumptions change a lot. So, if you're writing a book now about the colonization of the solar system over the next two centuries, it will probably look and feel quite differently from how it would have looked in 19. 19- 40 or 50, because we're much more aware now of conservation issues and climate. Problems and resource depletion and so forth. And, you know, you can look out to a, a, a kind of an exponential expansion beyond the earth. And pretty soon you've used up all the asteroids, all the moons and so forth. And you're facing the same kind of dilemmas as we, as we face now. So you can have a, a, a you could look at the same time scale, but with, with different assumptions. So the, so the story always moves on. And I think for each generation, to be honest, what they, res, what, it seems to me what they respond to it subtly changes as well. Science fiction is really all about the fears and dreams from, of the present oh, no. in which it's written. And you, have, you have, you, depending on what you, you, you can write anything, you know. But I, I go for hard SF, which is, which is as plausible as possible yeah. within the laws of physics. Even so, you're selecting a kind of a like from a tree of possible futures. But the possible future you select is always conditioned in a way by by what you're writing from now. For instance, what, in my Zeli novels, I've been working on those. My first published story was was a, in the Zeli universe uh, thirty years ago now. And I keep on going back to this because I think it's pretty good discipline for me personally. That was my original influences, you know, all coming together. So going back to that is like going back to the well again. Mm. But about 20 years ago, I was thinking about the nearest future. So there's Elliot's interstellar future. What's the nearest future the next few thousand years? And I came up with this vision of the Earth, as I would like to see it by the year 4000, as it from space it looks natural again. You know, maybe there's a couple of cities dotted around, but it looks natural. The forests are back, the animals are back. But it's a very high-tech civilization living very discreetly off the natural energy flows of the planet, which must be possible with efficient enough uh, technology, as little damage as possible is done to the place. You you disturb the energy flows and mass flows as little as possible, rest, restores some of the lost animals and so forth. Low, lowish population, say a billion, you know, it still seems, seems plenty of people to me. That's not a bad vision, but the question is how you get there from here. Oh. Which is quite different from, so, that they, so, so that's a 1990s vision. The 1940s vision of the Earth was more like, is it Coruscant in, in Star Wars where it's entirely plated over with a huge city? That seemed like utopia back then, but now we know that's, you know, nightmare.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, so yeah, imagining not a dystopian universe, but then something that is environmental, uh. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so that's very good. So coming back to, uh, this city research, uh, y- your talk today was, if I do not mistake, mostly about the, um, what will be the, um, what would be the intentions of an alien coming on Earth. And, uh, so mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to discuss about, is it, it's your uh, last book? Uh, yeah. My yeah.
6: My, my most recent book is it's called the Massac- massacre of mankind. And it's a sequel to H.U.L.'s War of the Worlds. So, you know, at the end of the novel, the Martians die off because you weren't prepared for the bacteria in Earth's atmosphere. But in, in my novel, they come back again 15 years later yeah. and have another try. Uh, more prepared and more systematic. But they have to come. It's, it's a climate collapse on Mars. This is a, the, the old Lowell picture of Mars and a cooling sun. We now know the sun's heating up, so we'll have to move for other reasons in the future. But they come to the Earth. It's warmer, you know. Uh, uh, they've been struggling with this, with this, with this situation for a million years, according to Wells. And so back they come. But my talk today for the SETI group was really about how the public react to fictional aliens, which is the mm-hmm. nearest thing we've had to contact uh, with the alien after all. And, uh, and in particular, Wells' and My Martians, uh, because uh, you know, when you do a book launch, I did some bits on the, on the radio and the telly, but I went around bookshops around the country, uh, London up to Edinburgh. Um, uh, giving talks about the book and so on, and and, and reading bits, and and pe- and I found people were very interested in the Martians and, and the development of the Martians in in my book, because everyone thinks they know about as well, Martians, you know, you, the, the, the fighting machines and everything. The way you think you know Superman and Doctor Who and Mister Spock and a small handful of other aliens that have survived in the popular. In popular culture, so I'm quite interested in that, and I think with with the Martians in particular, because they have this logical story. They're not conquistadors or imperialists in that way. They are migrants. They have to come again, so you can sympathise with that. And they do on their own level the moral. They help each other uh, uh, when they fall in battle, that kind of thing. Well, they've got this fatal flaw which we share. And anybody lower than them in the in the pecking order, mm-hmm. they've got no sympathy for. They're using mm-hmm. us as as livestock or well, that's their ambition anyway, just as we do, you know, yeah. with, uh, the chimps and, uh, uh, and so on. So, however, and, and it, it's fiction, you know, it, it, no Martian actually blew up, blew up my grandfather in the year 1900. I'd probably hold a grudge. You can separate out the, that, that reality in a sense. and You can understand why they're here. So even though you may not welcome them and you, you you'd resist them and so forth, you can have a certain compassion for them because they're driven to this desperate, um, Um, Extent And in Wells' novel Going to the other end of the story The beginning of the story The the cylinders land in southern England And they they smash everything up Just the landing um, Set fire to the heath you know. But the first reaction of the local people Is to try and help The the beings inside They know nothing about them But they try and help They think the the cylinder might be stuck uh, Closed Uh, They're they're, going to burn up in their will So they try to save them and then they try to, try to signal to them in a way with, with, with white flags, you know. So that the impulse is to signal and communicate and help. And so I was quite struck by the public response to all this as I was discussing it. You know, it, it seems to me that we do have the capability, at least in theory, of comprehending these alien beasts and seeing beyond the immediate, their immediate actions, the destructiveness and so on. So why are they actually here? Why we should be equipped with mental muscles to, uh, to, to recognize the alien. And sympathise with it is another question. It could be that it's just our habit of projecting personality onto everything, onto onto gadgets and pets, um, and so on. Just as in the past, you know, early physical theories were about uh, how uh, you know a falling ball wants to move down towards the earth and so forth, or animism. These are even earlier theories of of of, uh, of the universe. It's better than no theory at all, but uh... so it could be a, a kind of flaw in a way, or it could be a strength. Because we did, uh, one of my pet theories about the alien is that we, 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 we evolved among aliens, other kinds of, ho- other kinds of hominid running around the planet. I don't know what the current estimate is, but many kinds as we evolved, all of which we pushed away in the end and out competed. But you know, you go over the hill and you, you'd find another kind of people over there, not just strangers, but a different kind of human with different ways of thinking and so forth. Um, so maybe we're equipped to. Expect a landscape like that, and now it's depopulated really, except for the chimps, which is quite remote from us really. So, so maybe that's why we dream of aliens and used to dream of angels and demons and ghosts and so forth. It's because there's a gap in our perceptual universe.
1: So coming to, coming to H.G. Wells' um, novel. Um, so if and and when, so he wrote it when he when the aliens came. You said that well, and the humans gave show compassion to the um, to the Martians and yeah. stuff. If he had written not now Say the the first contact now happened. Do you think the response would be the same given the current climate of the world right now?
6: That's a very that's a very difficult question. A book like Wells's has survived because it's got many levels of meaning, and its it's initial inspiration was about colonialism. Uh, There was a horrific story of uh, the British wiping out the Tasmanians off the coast of Australia completely in a few generations. Terrible. And, you know, history is full of these awful colonial crimes. And that one specifically uh, inspired Wells to write something about well, if someone fell, fell down from the sky and did the same to us, we could hardly complain. However, it has got these other levels of meaning. So there's the mechanized warfare that worked out in, in, through the 20th century. And now this, this, the the climate migrant thing is, you know, that's, that's clearly going to be a big aspect. It's, a big aspect of the present. It's going to be a big aspect of the future. And that's what we can maybe take away from now. So suspect if Wells was writing it now, then possibly, um, he would play up that side. He would say, look how we're turning away these, these boat people. You know, yeah, yeah. it would, it would serve us right if we tried to move to Mars and they turned us away. Right. See, I, I think you, you'd, you'd have the same kind of extrapolation.
1: Oh, mm. Um, so coming back to the, the meeting that we had, um, this, 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 this week. Yeah. Um, so as, as someone who's written for, um, for, for, like a couple of decades now, especially about traveling and finding aliens and, and essentially for, in quote unquote SETI type things. Yeah. Um, and seeing it happening now, and being part of a community that is actually actively involved in it, and then we've seen breakthroughs actually I meant to jump start at. What, what's your thoughts on on, on the general how it's so it's going about now?
6: Uh, the SETI yeah, enterprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's clearly something that's always evolved as negative results have come in. Kind of as I said before, did you know that there was a prize given in the eighteenth in the towards the end of the nineteenth century for detecting evidence of life beyond Earth, mm-hmm. and they disqualified. Mars. They thought that as soon as they had a radio receiver big enough, that then you know they, they would hear radio signals from Mars. They, they just assumed. So you couldn't win the prize by detecting life on Mars. So so that one fell over, you know. And we found that the solar system was more more barren than than we might have hoped in, in terms of what kind of life, at least. And as, as I said, the the early SETI experimenters are pretty sure thought they found something soon. So so it's evolving. It's looking for other kinds of SETI evidence. Fitting these new hypotheses, I think one interesting one is, lo- is looking for evidence of life in the past. Suppose intelligent life is evanescent, you know, you, you collapse because you run out of resources and you, you may survive, but you're no longer signaling to the stars. Um, seems quite possible. So so there's talk now looking for evidence of, well, artifacts left on the moon, let's say, a probe left by an alien. Or even more convincing in a way is just uh, exotic products in, in interstellar dust, Exhaust from starships, basically. Uh, find some titanium and moon dust or something like that. It's something that couldn't have got there by any natural process. That's, that's something that, that, that could have been drifting around the galaxy for a billion years. Um, and yet it would, would still show up now. Evidence of something in the past. Quite convincing and compelling threads to follow. However, I do have private theories, possibly most of the academics do as well. Uh, but they could never admit it, could never get funded again. <laughs> That, <laughs> well, that, that maybe we're just missing it, you know. Maybe quasars are industrial catastrophes at the beginning of, uh, uh well, at the beginning of the universe. Maybe there was a gigantic explosion in the middle of the galaxy. I think it was it 100,000 years ago, something like that? There was a big molecular, ring of molecular dust being wafting out from the black hole. Maybe that was evidence of a war. It isn't one of my novels. You know, so we may be, we you have to assume that it's natural causes. That's, and you have to prove extraordinary claims that need extraordinary evidence. So you start with that and you, you work down a scale of these, of these things before you get to the, to the uh, artifact hypothesis. But it could be that some of what we're seeing out there is actually artifacts. Right. Maybe something quite subtle as well. Suppose there was a colonization wave that's sweeping across the galaxy consuming something like, I don't know, nitrogen, you look one way, you see a nitrogen depletion, you look the other way. There's no nitrogen depletion on on certain exoplanets, let's yeah. say. How could that be? Well, because the colonising wave got that far and it's it's moving on or it's stopped. So so there may be subtle things like that. We, we'd come up with theories about ga- formation of planets in different parts of the galaxy, wouldn't we? And so forth. But it may be that that kind of thing as well, depletions, strange depletions, is evidence of resource consumption in the past. So it could be, frankly, that the evidence is right under our noses. We're just not seeing it in the right way.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. New new point of view are no. always welcome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have one more question if you have any yeah. more. No, no, that's fine. So, okay. well, one last question um from from my point of view as someone who's like dabbling slightly in sci-fi on on evenings I would think of these things because I mean, reading lots of sci-fi and then actually doing science like I'm, I'm involved in SETI and a lot of other things like SK and stuff. Yeah. I tend to think about some of these things as well like but for a general listener, like who's interested in like what what advice you would give to like if they want to like get involved in writing stuff, Or at least putting on their own story even just on paper for themselves to read.
6: Oh well, basic advice is just to do it, just just write. Mm. It's I think in some ways it's more difficult now because there are distractions, online media stuff, mm. and if you if you pitch a novel to a publisher, they will say what kind of online presence have you got. Because they can use that to advertise so there's a real danger that you get you get distracted by your twitter feed as opposed to the novel you're supposed to be writing it's a solitary patient thing where you have to manage your own time you'll know but it's, it's like writing papers or a thesis even you've got, you've got to do it yourself in the end you get feedback from the people but you've got to manage your own time in long chunks and that that's not going to change so personally i, w- I would avoid uh, workshops and courses Because that's not what writing is, you know, you don't sit there working with other people. Well, I I know you do on some collaborative projects, screenwriting and so on, but if you're writing a novel, it's just you alone. I'd I'd recommend doing a correspondence course if you want to do something uh, to develop the writing where you you can get these things now where you, and I did one 30 years ago, were on short story writing. You get like a monthly exercise, which may be writing fragments in a certain style or maybe writing a short story on a certain topic, but you're actually writing. You, 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 you're doing the job in the way that you'll have to do in the future. Then you get feedback from so, a. That, that's my basic advice is just to just, just to write and, you know, you, you will be expected to sort of promote yourself through Twitter feeds and stuff, but if that's not the job. You've got to just write and do it. I, in, in my day, there was the same kind of questions will be asked. You know, well, what have you done? What, what interesting things have you done in the past that we can now promote? And the most interesting thing I ever came up with was applying to be an astronaut, uh, <laughs> and I did actually. Yeah, when uh, when this is about uh, twenty five years ago, the Mir was having was hosting guest cosmonauts, and they wanted one from Britain, and there was an open application anyone could could, uh, could apply. So I did, and I got through several stages. I was the right age, the right, I had a science background. You'd have to do some basic science up there. Um, but, but I didn't have a foreign language, any foreign language would have done, <laughs> but I got through several stages, you know, and I, I just, I wish I'd lied about it, you know, <laughs> maybe got to Star City. I'm not sure if I would have been brave enough to do the physical stuff in the end, but so, you know, but at least that's a, a, a that's an anecdote you can put on a, on a, on a, a press release. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that, that's it. Um, thanks a lot, Stephen, for your time. It was, it was enjoyable and it, Thank it's you. a great pleasure to, um, to, to, have a chat with you. Good. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's it.
0: Thanks for that, Hayden and Jeff. So, um, for all of you three, what else stood out for you about the conference?
1: Well, one thing, um, was, so one guy spoke of, um, I think it was Ian Crawford and I think it is still, still, still in, in my head is that, um, searching Farty Fox, it's, it's like on the moon. And in our near solar systems, like, for instance, the idea is that over the last, since the existence of the Earth and the Moon, that we've traveled around our solar, our galaxy a couple times. I don't know how many times, but you could work it out. And that during that time, that if there was civilization popping in and out and in existence, and because they were so far apart, they probably wouldn't speak to each other. Um, that essentially that our solar system, which essentially pick up artifacts from these civilization and that may be within our system, it could possibly be there and one idea is to use machine learning to to get images of our presence there in the solar system use that to train machines computers because while we are going out into our solar system we have images of of, of our solar system and the idea is to use our presence in the solar system right now use machines to essentially train to look at these images and see if we could pick up any other artificial that artificial um, presence that's not due to us I found that's kind of interesting because it's an idea I had for a while. So I, I did find out, for me it was pretty interesting.
2: Uh, yeah, there's many talks uh, as well that I really enjoyed. Um, there was one as well, um, from Matt Colburn. It was about the, uh, can- consciousness and, uh, city. So I really like this one because I, I think, um, uh, the science, what science is doing, uh, in terms of, um, research on the brain is uh, evolving as well. And at the same time, people should also ask uh, themselves the question how we should define intelligence uh, itself and how consciousness uh, is involved in intelligence itself. And he it also brought the idea that maybe in the famous Drake equation we should add this term of consciousness, not only uh, what is the the, the, chance that we find an intelligent, um, extraterrestrial, ex- extraterrestrial life somewhere, but also are they self-conscious? So yeah, yeah, I found it really interesting. And, uh, also our way to, to analyze data change with, um, with time. And, um, there was also another talk, uh, about this again, famous Drake equation and how we can maybe do a Bayesian analysis and analysis of the, uh, equation and I, I thought it was really interesting,
3: yeah, no, I agree those were really good talks um, and going back to hayden 's point about the artifacts, I found it interesting in Ian crawford 's talk he he mentioned that the moon sort of preserves everything on its surface roughly for about a hundred million years. Mm. Um, so that's like the cratering sort of lifetime of the of the moon. After a hundred million years, you get hit by something. So mm-hmm. whatever's there gets obliterated or at least broken up. But you know that's that's a long period in which to go to the moon and look to see what's kind of fallen down there and mm-hmm. if there's anything interesting like alloys from you know passing spacecraft that come off the engines, etc. And I think he mentioned that you need to you need to be able to process something like a a square kilometer of the, the lunar surface mm-hmm. in order to be able to pick, you know, some of these, n- mm-hmm. you know, these are alloys that would only arise because you have an intelligence that's produced them. Um, although I'm not sure people have really thought about whether some of these things can actually be also produced by natural processes mm-hmm. or not. So uh, clearly a lot of interesting things to, to, to do there.
0: Yeah, no, that is a possibility. has never even crossed my mind. So that's really interesting to hear yeah. about that being a different approach about finding, um, evidence for life.
3: I suppose one thing that I'm keen on personally is, um, you know, whether there are also artifacts in our astronomical data. Um, you know, we, our instruments, you know, they improve all and all the time. Um, but we tend to, as astronomers, as I mentioned before, we tend to kind of just look up and we're only interested in measuring, you know, that thing that we are, we we've kind of expecting to see. Uh, and often we throw away the things that we don't want. So, you know, if we get interference in our radio data, then we, we very casually just throw that all away. And, you know, there could be some SETI signals in there. Um, but also not just in the radio, also uh, across the electromagnetic spectrum, we should be on the lookout for things that don't match up with our expectations. They may be new astrophysical phenomena, but they might actually also be signatures of, um, you know, advanced um, civilizations.
0: And I guess that comes back to a wider point as well in astronomy about. You know, a lot of data is thrown away. Um, and I, I know there was someone here, for example, who, who was working on planetary nebula and managed to get a data set that someone else was just, chuck- basically just chucking in the bin because it was of no use to them. Um, but actually she managed to find new planetary nebula in it. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but there, but there's lots of cases where that happens in yeah, science, uh, right? Because it doesn't meet your science case. Yes. Yeah, so you yeah, don't yeah. use it. And finding the person who would use it takes time that you don't necessarily yeah. have. Um, so especially as surveys get bigger
1: yeah, um, yeah and have more
0: data you need to think about I strategies kind of, to avoid that
1: this is slightly off topic but it, it was an idea how to doing my PhDs so I had the same struggle I was trying to get data for a particular object and I had to keep going to people and asking them begging them for if you have this data do you have this data some of them have it some of them remember where to put it <laughs> <laughs> I was trying I, I kind of think of a really cool idea would be if we have like a Social network, like, with, like, essentially a science version of Facebook where people could post and say, right, I'm working on this, does anybody have data? And then you could just post your data on it. And then when people working on something, is like, well, I've, I've written this paper on such and such, I have this data on such and such, is anybody interested in it? I mean, you could keep it on your hard drive and then like have that sort of interaction So, and someone like, for instance, like planetary, the person who did planetary nebula, they could like, well, I have, I'm interested in this region, do you have anything on just this region? And I'm like, oh yeah, here's all this data. And then you could go ahead and start analysing it. Mm. it. It 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 was a frustrating time to try and beg people to get data when I was thinking about. So yeah.
0: Um, no, yeah, I think some something like that would be really helpful if you've got the time. <laughs> um, I think everyone would appreciate that.
1: <laughs> if, yes, yes. So one other thing that um was was interesting is from Mike's talk actually um that that the speed of light is we always think it's it's so. Fast. I mean, as, as a kid himself, I thought it was always very fast. But then when you look at the scale of the galaxy, it, it's, it's essentially so slow. It's really slow because civilization, lifetimes of civilization could pop in existence and pop out. Between the cross-talk, and I got this really nice animation. We had the galaxy. You could imagine a galaxy and then like on one arm, a civilization popped in and it popped out. And then on the other side, another civilization popped in, popped out. But then if you try to trace the, the, the speed of light between them, they will... Popping and popping out the existence before the signals between each one of them meet each other. And that was, it was just mind blowing to, to actually put it in perspective after all, so many years doing science to actually have that. Makes you realize how slow speed of light is. And we're actually fighting against the speed of light. So yeah, that, that was very interesting for me. And now that leads us to um, the question of the week, the, this week's question. And it's on here Francesca and Matt would ask an astronomer.
7: Hi, I'm Francesca, and I'm here with Matt, and this is this month's Ask an Astronomer. So the first question is from Henning Vester-Jorgensen from Denmark, and he says, I am always a little confused about the mass-momentum thing regarding photons. I'm thinking of the observations confirming Einstein's theory. Did Newtonian theory predict the light would not bend at all? I mean, the photons have a mass equivalent, right, or did Newtonian theory just predict it bent less than the relativistic prediction?"
8: So that's a very good question. So the mass that you described is, is is not the mass in our usual understanding, such as I have a mass of X kilograms, the Earth has mass of Y kilograms, and so on. Uh, this sort of mass is called the rest mass, and, and any object with a non-zero rest mass cannot travel at the speed of light, as that would require an infinite amount of energy. The mass of photon we talk uh, uh, about in the framework of special relativity is a relativistic mass. And it, it is indeed proportional to the photon's momentum. Uh, to answer to your question, uh, we, however, don't have to use any special relativity or general relativity and can only limit ourselves to, to simple reasoning used in, in Newtonian dynamics. So, the most important answer is that Newtonian dynamics did indeed predict that the light would bend in the presence of mass. Newton himself posted this question in the last volume of his book Optics. It reads, Do not bodies act upon light at the distance, and by their action bend its rays? And it's not this action strongest at the least distance? Uh so from this question we can already see that Newton was was quite seriously considering this problem at that time we are fairly confident that Newton treated light rays as entities composed of very small object emitted by stars and and anything that really shines objects that we may today call photons so he wasn't really bothered about what we call today the 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 wave particle duality at that time they were only considering light rays as packets of, of some, some small objects. He knew that the acceleration of the body in the presence of gravitational force does not depend on the mass of the accelerated body. Well, we all remember the Feather and Hammer experiment performed on the surface of the Moon uh, by the crew of, of Apollo 15 mission. That was known in 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 the time of newton as well that whatever you drop in the presence of gravitational field its acceleration will not depend on its mass so you know there was really nothing stopping massless objects from accelerating as well if acceleration does not depend on the mass of the objects why wouldn't massless objects accelerate Newton, however, never really answered this question himself in any of his publications, so really he just posted this question, but we don't have any evidence that he really, really tried to to answer it. work published by Johann Soldner at the beginning of the 19th century is, is one of the first, if not the first, works that tried to calculate the full solution to this problem. So as you can see, the question and, and the solution of whether the path of light can be banned by massive objects predates Einstein's general theory of relativity and its concepts of space-time by more than 100 years. The amount by which the light would bend if, if Newtonian theory of gravity was correct on large scales was found to be half of the value predicted by einstein's gtr it is not quite common to to hear that the nineteen nineteen expedition led sir arthur eddington to observe and record any changes in positions of stars during solar eclipse was able to confirm the validity of gtr because they have detected that the trajectory of light was bent by the mass of sun In reality, what Eddington was looking for was whether the angle of deflection was consistent with Newton's or Einstein's theories of gravity. He was able to confirm, not without many problems and facing massive oppositions from the supporters of the Newtonian gravity, that the angle that the rays of light went bent at, was consistent with, with Einstein's not-Newtonian gravity. And that provided, as we know, a f- pretty much a first successful confirmation of the new theory of gravity. For those of our listeners interested in a more rigorous derivation, the full solution to this problem can be found in a short 2009 paper, a Newtonian gravitational deflection of light revisited. Thank
7: you. Thank you. Moving on to the next question. This is from Ben Dyer. And they ask, I've read the speed of light is different in different media, air, water, etc. And only has the speed C in a complete vacuum. First of all, is this the case? And what are some good examples? Secondly, does the speed of light therefore slow in diffuse gas clouds in the galaxy slash universe? And does this affect bilge to a point where it affects the age of the light reaching us in any meaningful way? Thirdly, would this slowing, if it happens, affect Redshift.
8: So when we really talk about light waves, or or indeed any waves, we usually talk about two velocities, group velocity and phase velocity. Uh, Group velocity is the velocity at which the general envelope of the multi-frequency wave moves through the space, and in most real-life scenarios it can be considered as the velocity at which the information is carried through the medium. Phase velocity, on the other hand, is the velocity of the individual waves inside the envelope. So let's start with the phase velocity, because it's it's mostly common to, to what we see on Earth. It can be defined as the speed of light divided by the refractive index. So refractive index is an intrinsic property of the material which describes how fast light travels in a given medium and how much light bends when it enters or exits this medium. In dielectric materials, the refractive index is a function of frequency, and generally it increases as the frequency of light increases. So we can see that that for light at at different frequencies, the refractive index will change, and and therefore the, the speed already at which the different frequency components of, of light, of visible light, they will travel at different velocities. And I think that the best, and arguably one of the most beautiful examples of this, to demonstrate the dependence of phase velocity on the frequency, is, is simply prism. What we see as white light is in fact composed of a whole spectrum of different colours, between blue and purple at the highest frequency part of the spectrum, and red at the lowest one. The refractive index as I said before, will therefore be different for different components, even if only slightly, and the rate of white light will be split at each of the components would take a slightly different path due to different refractive indices, with the blue-purple colors that have the lowest velocity bend more than the orange and red traveling a bit faster. If we consider a monochromatic light wave, it is light at a single wavelength, the refraction of light itself is already a manifestation of the fact that the light travels at different speeds in different media. The situation changes when we start talking not about dielectric materials, but the ionized interstellar medium, something that we astronomers are interested in. In this case, we do consider group velocity, really, because this, as I said, is information that is arriving to us. This is the information that we're recording. The group velocity in an ionized dispersive medium will always be lower than the speed of light for waves with a frequency greater than the plasma frequency, which for the interstellar medium is close to 1.4 kilohertz. Theoretically, it is impossible f- to travel for waves that have frequency lower than the plasma frequency, so whatever we really can observe has to be higher than the plasma frequency and will be traveling at the speed lower than the speed of light. And what is more important is again that the speed of light depends again on the frequency, this time due to presence of free-floating electrons in the ionized medium. It means that unless you are in the perfect vacuum, and and by vacuum I mean absolutely nothing, and, and even the vacuum that we describe in space does not feel this requirement as I will explain later, the speed of light will be different for different frequencies the electromagnetic waves at higher frequencies will be slowed down less than those at lower frequencies. The energy of the photon is proportional to its frequency. So you can imagine that photons at higher frequencies will have more energy to push through matter that is trying to stop them. Similarly to when you run through the crowded shopping center, it is easier to push people out of your way than when you walk slowly. And please don't do this. And I do not advise running through the crowded shopping center and do not take any responsibility for any possible injuries or problems with law that it may cause. This property of light can cause some interesting effects in some of the data we record. I personally work with pulsars and fast radio bursts, and one of the ways we can measure the distance to these objects is through the so-called dispersion measure. As the name can suggest, it has a lot in common with the dispersion in water droplets or in prism that I have talked about. Even though we talk about vacuum in space, this vacuum doesn't really mean a perfect nothingness or emptiness. We can still find atoms and subatomic particles floating in space. They are present at very small densities, and on average you can find about one atom of of hydrogen per cubic centimetre. But the density in different regions of our galaxy can differ by few orders of magnitude depending on whether you are in the less dense outskirts of the galaxy, or more crowded spiral arms, or the densest galactic centre. But even at such small densities, the light can interact with the matter between stars and galaxies, and produce visible effects, the dispersion measure being one of them. When we record the signal coming from a pulsar using a radio telescope, such as our very own Lovell telescope at the Jodrell Bank Observatory, We do it over a finite bandwidth, usually a multiple of megahertz. What we see is that every pulse from the pulsar arrives first at the highest frequency part of the spectrum with lower frequencies arriving later. This effect has a quadratic dependence on frequency, so you can expect that a signal emitted at 1 gigahertz will have a dispersion delay four times greater than the signal traveling at 2 gigahertz. The difference in arrival times between the highest and lowest frequencies in our measured bands depends on the center frequency at which you observe, the bandwidth you use and the amount of stuff between you and the object you observe, and can be anywhere between a fraction of a second up to tens of seconds for lowest observing frequencies and largest distances. The effect of dispersion broadens the recorded pulse and reduces signal-to-noise ratio, and therefore has to be removed in a rather computationally expensive process using complicated, carefully tuned computer algorithms. But pulsar dispersion is not all bad. By measuring the dispersion of the pulsar, we effectively measure the amount of matter the radiation interacts with as it travels towards our telescope. If we have an independent estimate of the distance to the pulsar obtained through, for example, parallax measurements, we can then measure the electron density along the line of sight, which can tell us more about the composition of our Milky Way. The situation gets even more complicated when we move further away from our galaxy. So far that we have to take cosmological effects such as the expansion of the universe that you have mentioned in your question into account. That makes everything more complicated, but to be honest, as pulsar astronomers, we did not have to be concerned about this problem as the vast majority of the objects we observe in the radio part of the spectrum are within our Milky Way, where we don't have to worry too much about the expansion of the universe. It all changed, however, in 2007 with the discovery of the first fast radio bursts. We now believe that These are events that take place at cosmological distances with redshifts usually greater than a half where the effects of the expansion of the universe have to be taken into account because they are important for our equations. As the universe expands, the wavelength of the signal emitted from the object increases and its frequency decreases. That makes the frequency of the recorded signal a function of distance to the object and we have to be really careful when using it with our usual dispersion measure calculations. We have to include not only the amount of matter into the galactic medium that we know much less about than about interstellar medium, but also the correct cosmological models that depend on the curvature and the composition of the universe if we really want to get a correct distance to these objects. So things get much more complicated the further you go away from from us.
7: And finally this week, Tom Perry asks, how does the concept of year figure into light year measurements? A year seems so earth-centric that it's hard for me to understand how light is measured by a year.
8: So, question like that comes up fairly often in one form and another, mainly because a year is rather confusingly used for measuring distance. So first, let's quote a definition by International Astronomical Union which says that a light year is equal to the distance travelled by light in one Julian year in a vacuum as measured here on Earth. And by Julian year, we mean 365 and a quarter of a day. So in a sense, yes, it's a fairly Earth-centric as as we use our Earth year. It is, it is however, very convenient to use. We use it because it makes expressing vast distances in the universe much easier. It is easier to say that Proxima Centauri is four and a quarter light years away from the Earth, rather than saying it's at at the distance of more than four times 10 to 16 meters, or 40 trillion kilometers. That would make writing papers and books pretty horrible. If needed, it can be still expressed in meters and used in equations that rely on SI unit, but it's much more practical to use it when comparing the distances to an object. It can also help us talk about the travel times between objects in the universe. If I say that TRAPPIST-1 is at the distance of around 40 light years from the Earth, you know that it would take us 40 years to get there when travelling at the speed of light, which is impossible eight years that have the speed of light, etc. But if I told you the distance was 38 times 10 to 13 kilometers, I personally would have no idea whether that's very far or very very far. So again, in this sense, light year is just a very convenient way of putting very large distances into easily manageable numbers, and it's very useful because it really has a very simple definition. A light year is also not the only Earth-centric unit of measure of distance. The other one, in my opinion, is the astronomical unit, which is more or less defined as a mean distance between the Sun and the Earth. When our solar system is concerned, defining one AU as close to 150 million kilometers and using it for measuring distances between objects in our system makes sense. One light year is equal to little bit more than... 63,241 AU, so at larger distances it simply makes sense to talk about light years rather than millions of astronomical units. And as you have said, these are very earth centering and not universal, so if we were to meet a civilization living on a planet much closer to the host star with a much shorter period, their definition of light year and astronomical unit, if they actually had any, would be totally different but let's be honest, in this case, even our choice of meter would be pretty much arbitrary.
1: Thanks for that, Francesca and Matt. And uh, now on to the feedback.
0: So, we don't actually have any feedback this episode. Um, our pigeonhole was sadly empty, but we did get some nice photos of the Lovable Telescope from David Gelsthorpe and Gary Stiles um, on Twitter. And if you do want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
3: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Also
2: via Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
1: And for the YouTubers out there at youtube.com slash jodcast.
0: At Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast.
3: And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website.
0: Thanks to Jamie Drew, Danny Price and Stephen Baxter for the interviews. The editors were Alex Clark, Naomi Asabra Frimpong, Thomas Scragg and Ian Evans. The producers were Jake Morgan and Benjamin Shaw. Until next time.